Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. As always, I'm Catherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca. Hello. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. In each episode, we look at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited and thankful to see you here today for our episode on 2020's The Invisible Man. I'm glad that you got that pun in early. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. I I know it it may have been a little short-sighted that I did it so early because I didn't have the best 2020 vision there and looking forward to the future. Um, (laughs) Excellent. Um, so, puns aside, um, we are breaking with the tradition. We try to, or we often look at films that are, or books that are a little bit older, so that we've had a chance to sort of see what um, scholarship and what sort of just responses to the text have been coming out. But um, Anthony and I wanted to talk about Invisible Man now because we felt like it's it's a film that is rather, what's the word that I want? Important? Yes, let's go with important. It's a film that's rather important in light of of things that happened very much after the film had had wrapped um, and been released. And that is, of course, uh, the COVID-19 situation mm-hmm. and just the the sense of paranoia, issues of domestic violence. Um, Existential dread. Yeah, all of these things that I think we are dealing with in a very real way, this film was giving us that sort of like, metaphor to approach uh long before we knew we were going to need it and And, i think yeah just as before and we also we are recording this we are dating ourselves during the COVID 19 pandemic that's currently going on so we're still recording this in separate locations social distancing uh although we are always striving to improve our audio so hopefully the audio in this episode sounds a little better than last episode yes the the magic of having multiple microphones of, of quality is definitely yeah. going to make a difference. Just work with us as we work through this trying time along with you. All right, so let's kick off this conversation about The Invisible Man uh, with a little bit of academic framework. Yes. Oh, boy. I know. Just because we are not together doesn't mean that we can't still talk about scholarship. Oh, no, no, no. You thought you were getting out of your scholarship? incorrect never we'll never we're never gonna stop we'll never stop so um the the scholarship that i wanted to bring in so anthony and i were bouncing around ideas and and one of the things that we'll be talking about because this is what the film is about is is domestic violence and things like that but i think a good framework for getting into that really is this this issue of paranoia and how the text and by extension just sort of horror text um engage with creating paranoia and how oftentimes that is a very gendered experience as the film I think very clearly demonstrates. Yeah. Would you say the name of the book just because I think it's so like weird and kind of freaky? Yeah so the book I'm going to be talking about today is Judith Halberstam's Skin Shows and the subtitle Ooh. is yeah it's such a creepy sounding title. Um, it's just it's got that creepy alliteration in there. It, it does and anything that has skin in it you're like ew it's so gross. Um, 
And then the subtitle is Gothic Horror and the Technology of Monsters. Um, and what's really important is that the things we're going to be talking about, I think, will feel very timely for The Invisible Man and for some other films. But she is writing in 1995. That's when the book comes out. And so I think it's always just really great to see um, a text be able to sort of have that longevity uh, in terms of the academic sort of relevance. Um, and I think that's very true. It shows that this author really has like some universality to the ideas that she's expressing. It's though she would, cause she references films in here, like uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, but it, they work just as well with films like The Invisible Man that came out in 2020. Yes. And, and, I, and perhaps that I think speaks also to what makes The Invisible Man so good, right? Is that it is tapping into a, a richer tradition, an established tradition, um, and doing interesting things to break us out of that, um, but also doing some things that I think keep us firmly grounded in what we've come to recognize as being the things that are going to disturb us in horror. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to just read several of her uh, quotes from her that just kind of set things up. And then I think what will happen is um, as we begin our discussion about the, the source of horror, the paranoia, we may come back to some of these. Oh, boy. So, Story time. Story time, indeed. So Halberstam begins her chapter on paranoia and, and the gothic narrative and the horror film by beginning, as one often does, with Freud. I'm going to skip over some of Freud because I can only take him in small doses. This is Freud erasure. How dare you? I know. I know. And it's so sad. But, you know, that's okay. Um, you can go you don't wanna, look at Freud on your own You don't want to read from this creepy little man's excerpts. You don't want to, like, talk about that. Yeah, I just, I really can't. Because, like, I'm not saying he doesn't have some truth to the things he does. I obviously believe very firmly in the, his ideas of the uncanny. But not everything is about, like, fears of homosexuality. Um, or, like, fears of being a woman. But, but... <laughs> What I think is important is that Halberstam uses that as a framework because she says that there is clearly in, in Gothic horror a distinction between how masculine paranoia and uh, feminine paranoia manifest. Uh, I think we can see that very clearly when we have that switch from Cecilia being disturbed uh, and paranoid to her husband being disturbed and paranoid. So uh, Halberstam says that horror for the masculine paranoic lies in not knowing oneself is already diseased and yet finding evidence of infection all around. The power of feminine paranoia or simply feminist critique lies in its ability to read lack and disfigurement productively and to exist with loss without nostalgically yearning for wholeness. I think like that sums up for me a good chunk of the what makes the ending so powerful. So I think I just kind of, as we have our discussion, want it to be clear that scholarship and the invisible man are really i think gendering uh paranoia in some important ways so other things to keep in mind that halberson uh talks about is the fact that um there's so much that we associate with the male gaze and of course that comes to us from uh, a scholar named laura mulvey who has mm -hmm. an article called visual pleasure and narrative cinema and she really talks about like patriarchal productions of femininity and that's been used a lot in horror scholarship um, to make an argument that when we have the female gaze, when we have the female looking, um, oftentimes in that process, the woman becomes monstrous herself. And so, again, uh, you know, is Cecilia, as she becomes increasingly violent, um, increasingly obsessive, right? Is she becoming 
monstrous uh, would be a question we could ask ourselves. Yes. Isn't it nice when everything uh, yeah, just and It's one together? that we'll keep in mind. Uh, Lee so Wynell, the last the couple of things that I, I want to bring up that again will be coming back to, to some extent. Um, so we can so this is this a direct quote from Halverson. She says, the women who are not worried about being watched within the horror film very often die. The alternative to paranoia in horror films very often is nothing more than a gullibility and a kind of stupid naivete. And I think that, again, you know, so much of this film encourages us to be paranoid, right? Because we're watching it and we're wondering, like, am I seeing something move on its, on its quote, own, right? Is there an invisible presence? And one of the ways that the film sort of encourages us to have this sense of paranoia is by making us listen, right? So um, fear can be produced from a sound. And in a text where it is about someone who's invisible, we're relying a lot on, on sound. Yeah, and neutral space. So now that we have our academic background for The Invisible Man, time to get a little just regular background on The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man, it's a 2020 science fiction horror film written and directed by Lee Wynell. He is an Australian screenwriter, actor, film producer, and director. Uh, he's probably best known for writing films that were directed by his close personal friend, James Wan, uh, including Saw, the original from 2004, Dead Silence from 2007, Insidious 2010, and Insidious Chapter 2 from 2013. Uh, so Wynell was born in Melbourne, Australia, and he believes that his inherited love of storytelling came from his mother. Isn't that sweet? It is sweet. Yeah, and that his fondness of filmmaking came from his father, who was a cameraman in the television industry. So it's very artistically inclined family. Uh, Lee Wynell actually met James Wan when they were both in film school together. And while they were in film school together, they wrote a script that would later become Saw. Lee Wynell is actually, you can, not only did he write and help develop this Saw film, he's actually in the film. He's one of the main characters. He plays Adam in the film. Interesting. So, yeah, he he was an he's done a lot of acting and like bit parts and smaller roles, but he's one of the leads in the Saw film that he, and so which James Wan directed, Lee Wynell wrote and starred in. So I thought that was just that was interesting to include. Yeah, and when you think about like his his pedigree, right, or his his resume, um, you can see how the Invisible Man everything he was kind of doing before was allowing him to develop a skill set, either in terms of writing or directing that he would then use to, I think, pull off some really masterful things in the invisible man. Yeah. And I think that what is, I, I have found really interesting about Lee Wynell is his ability to improve himself every time he does something. So he made his directorial debut on the sequel to the insidious film insidious chapter three in 2015. Oh Yeah. Uh-huh. I remember this now. It's not yeah. a bad one. No. Um, yeah. Not, not particularly groundbreaking, though. Right. How, however, his next film, what he followed it up, was uh, he, he was the writer-director of the science fiction body horror film Upgrade, which was released by Blumhouse Tilt and OTL, releasing in 2018. And it was 
really positively received. I think rightly so, because I think that film is very well done. If you haven't seen Upgrade, I would highly recommend you see it. Have you seen it? I have not. Oh my gosh, you've got to see it. It's really, really well done. Okay. He, I think here he's like, he's really where he found how to use the camera. And he's taken a lot of stuff that he learned in Upgrade and used it really aptly when he made uh, The Invisible Man. Uh, Wynell is now currently working on a reboot of Escape from New York and has expressed interest in writing and directing a sequel to Upgrade, which I would be very happy to see. So development of the actual Invisible Man began as early as 2006 when David S. Goyer was hired to write the screenplay. If that name sounds familiar, it should. He's the writer of the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. Hmm. Uh, also, and I, I feel I have to say this because those are three incredible films. Also the writer of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Oh. Goyer remained attached to the project as late as 2011, although there was not a lot of development made on the film. So then in February 2016, the project was announced to be revived. It was back from the dead as a part of Universal's cinematic universe, uh, their monster-verse, their dark universe uh, of that was going to consist of a bunch of classic monster characters. So... In 2016, Johnny Depp was cast as the titular character, uh, and Ed Solomon was going to write the screenplay. Uh, and so this would have been a part of their, their monster universe with the film The Mummy that starred Tom Cruise. Right. Uh, that was supposed to kick it off, and it would then be followed by a remake of The Bride of Frankenstein that was supposed to come out in 2019. However, when The Mummy bombed, and was just really poorly received, there were a bunch of changes made to the Dark Universe to focus on individual storytelling and move away from the shared universe concept. Jason Blum, uh, was he wanted to work on some of these films. He's a Blumhouse Entertainment, which has done some really good stuff and some really not as good stuff. Uh, but then eventually Lee Wynell, who had worked with the Blumhouse before uh, and had connections with Jason Blum himself, uh, got attached to the project. And Lee Wynell said that he actually never knew about the plan connected nature of the film. Uh, he says, it was weird. This film came about in a really random way. It wasn't like I was plugged into some kind of world building. I just finished Upgrade. They called me in for a meeting with some of these Universal and Blumhouse execs. I go to this meeting and they didn't really talk about Upgrade. I mean, they said they liked it and moved on. So I'm sitting on this couch thinking, what am I here for? What is this meeting about? And then they started talking about the Invisible Man. And Wynell actually admitted that he didn't really care about the Invisible Man property, but he wasn't afraid to just start blurting out his own ideas about what the Invisible Man should be. And I will say, like, for me, of the the major sort of monster figures, I've always personally found the Invisible Man to be less interesting. Um, you know, we've seen now several film versions of it from the early versions to the the one with Kevin Bacon, right? And it's just... It's not always very interesting, and I, I wonder if in part it's because it's so often just about, like, this male character that becomes invisible that, that does his own little thing, and mm-hmm. and it really sort of ignores what this film really, like, dwells in, and that is yeah. the, like, okay, if we're going to have a man who's invisible, what does that mean for the women in his life? Exactly. And, yeah, and that was exactly what Wynell was thinking, because he thought up the pitch for this film in, in under a week, and he had this idea 
to tell the story from the perspective of the victim and make the Invisible Man her abuser. And uh, so then after that, uh, they liked his take on it and they greenlit the project. And then really quickly after getting the project greenlit, Elizabeth Moss entered negotiations to star in the film. She says she was doing season three of The Handmaid's Tale and she had just done Us. And as soon as she started to read the script, she completely understood why this was definitely up my alley. It was this convergence of a genre film reboot and an emotional character piece. This is the Jordan Peele way of approaching the genre. You're taking something that's on the surface, entertaining in a popcorn movie, but at the same time, there's a deeper message to it. I was like, okay, I see exactly why they think this is for me. And first I wanna say that's just like really high praise to Jordan Peele and just showing how much he's shaped the genre. Yes. Thus far, that it's now the Jordan Peele way of thinking about things. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've talked about this before, this idea of like how much how much should lay at the hands of the filmmaker or the writer, right? Like this concept of the auteur. But yeah, considering that when you think about the genre, there are only a few names of people that you can say it's the so-and-so way and people just instantly know what you mean, right? And we have Alfred Hitchcock yeah. on that list. Um, George Romero is certainly on that list. Stephen so, King is not, a, he's not a filmmaker, but the Stephen King oh, way, absolutely. certainly, you know exactly what you're talking exactly. about. And I, I think now, I think Jordan Peele is, he's only made really two horror things, three if you count the Twilight Zone, but he certainly entered this top yeah, tier. Yeah, he's, he's helped produce a needed uh, paradigm shift, one that I think allows us to be in a place for um, this version of The Invisible Man to emerge. And so the, this version of The Invisible Man was theatrically released in the United States on February 28th, 2020 by Universal Pictures. Uh, but on March 20th, it was one of the many films that was prematurely released to streaming platforms for rent in response to the coronavirus pandemic that's currently going on. It was pretty successful, even though it was only in theaters for a short time. It made a worldwide total of 124.5 million. And this is against a budget of $7 million. Yeah. So it had already made its money out in theaters, uh, even though it was pulled before even being in theaters an entire month. And so it, it did well by itself. Yeah. Uh, and the reception to this film was very positive. Rotten Tomatoes critic score gave it a 91%. Audiences gave it an 88. Metacritic score is a little lower, but still relatively positive. Critics gave it a 71. Audiences a 7.0. So like, they're pretty much in agreement there. It's a very well-received film. And this is just an interesting tidbit. In November of 2019, before this film was released, it was announced that there was going to be a spinoff film developed by Elizabeth Banks, uh, about the female counterpart to The Invisible Man called The uh, Invisible Woman based off of The Invisible Woman from the 1940s. Which means, you know, in like 10 years when that film finally goes through all of the... I've just been so amazed every time you give us the introduction, like how long it takes for things to happen and then how all of a sudden everything everything happens in like five minutes. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in, in 10 years, we can talk about The Invisible Woman when it finally makes its debut yeah. under totally new directors, writers, and names associated with it. Yeah. So Lee Wynell actually, so people have been asking him since at the end of the film, uh, spoilers, obviously, um, <laughs> at the end of the film, when Cecilia takes the invisible technology for herself, if this means that there's sequels planned, but Lee Wynell is just like, I don't know. He admits uh, that he never thinks about a story beyond the borders of the story. Like, I never think, okay, what does she do after that final scene? It's almost like when a story ends, it ends. 
So in my mind, there's a cathartic moment for Elizabeth Moss's character, but I'm not sure what she does yet. Uh, and so while he says Cecilia's future is unwritten, Wynell says the ending of The Invisible Man is certainly a new beginning for the character, but he's pretty sure she's not going to go on a killing spree anytime soon. He says, I think her actions are probably not a pattern. She's probably just getting rid of this one problem. It's like a tumor that she's cut out of her life. I was just going to say, I certainly agree that with um, his assessment that I don't think this character has any desire or need to become, um, you know, some sort of like rampage killer, maybe a vigilante killer. I could see that. Protecting like women who have been affected by domestic abusers. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think it is important to nevertheless acknowledge how the film forces us to to reconcile the ending so the at the end of the film we see cecilia's friend the police officer james um giving her that look that you know he's aware of what she's done and he's certainly in his much more sort of strict um, moral black and white compass world um not okay with it and to go back to what Halberstam was saying, you know, the moment that the woman is the one looking, right, which at the end she is because she's seeing things and, and the male now has to be paranoid, the husband, um, is the moment that we open the door at least to the interpretation that the female is no longer victim, she's potentially a, a monstrous figure herself. Yeah. And so I think it's important that even if... Um, she doesn't do these things in the future. Even if we say that this is the end of the film and this is the end of the story of this imaginary character, I don't think we can completely just say that the ending just wraps up and, and that we don't have to think about it anymore, right? Like, I think that we need to acknowledge that the ending of the film turns her into the thing that we have spent the, the entire film fearing. Someone who has the power to be invisible and to enact their version of justice because that's what the husband's doing his is just gross and and predatory but but again i think that's a really intriguing and important part of the end of the film that we can't ignore just because the story's quote over yeah and i i think that that's certainly an, a definitely a valid way to read and interpret the end of the film it's just i and i think this is one of those cases where what the creator says about the film itself doesn't actually matter like, just because in his mind it's over doesn't mean that it's over for us thinking about it and, like, the implications or, of it. Or or maybe, well, so I feel like it was a little hard. It's a little harsh to say, like, that it doesn't matter, although we've said that about other people, too. I think it's that it it matters only in that it is one of many ways that we can and should read this text. Yeah, and I, I feel it's a very, like, that's like how writers view things because they're like, well, the thing, the story I've done, I've told it, it's finished, so that's the end. But yes. often pieces, good pieces of literature and film sit with you and stay and just like permeate in your mind a lot longer than that. And so obviously we are thinking about this and the implications far after the writer is because the writer is so focused on the story world itself. Right. Whereas we no, don't have to be as focused on the story world. We can think of the larger implications and all of this and whatnot. Absolutely. And and I think too, you know, so both of us saw this film in theater before... Before COVID-19 closed all movie theaters. Exactly. And and that, that means that we experienced the film originally um, in a sort of pre-COVID-rich situation. Yeah, um, certainly. But... 
this film came up pretty fast when we were thinking about films that would allow us to sort of think about the world that we're currently living in. This film was really yeah. high on that list. And also admittedly, just because I wanted to talk about it. I mean, so so that's certainly some of it, but it was also because we were acknowledging that like the issues of paranoia, the issues of like, um, at what point do victims become monsters? Like there was just so much of it that seemed very, very relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, before we get into those larger conversations about the stuff that's going on, let's talk a little bit about what we liked about it. What we liked, what we didn't like. And then we can yes. go into more specific things and applying frameworks. So the so there are two things that I like about this film. There's there's my only memory two of the things. No no okay. Let me rephrase that. There are two types of things that I like about this film. Um, one of them is associated with my initial viewing experience, and then one of them is associated with just like some of the great things the film is doing. Mm. So first, um, when I saw this in theater, there it was like on a Tuesday evening or Monday evening so there was not very many people in the audience and it was you know like near the beginning of everything where people were beginning to isolate and stuff like that mm -hmm. um so it was just like us and a few other people and the audience that I was with were some of the dopiest people I've ever <laughs> like been a part of of a viewing experience for and it was actually like rather delightful so um there was a older couple that I don't think like understood what the, the film was because at points like, so when um, she has all that money that she's giving to James's daughter, right. really loudly, one of the people was like, where'd she get that money from? Even though the film had just explained it. Even though the film had just explained it. And I was like, it's okay. You know, maybe she, they just weren't listening in that moment. But then there was another moment where um, Cecilia is yelling in the house, where are you? Like, where are you? And uh, we have some non-diegetic music playing over piano playing. And again, really loudly, the same person was like, he's playing the piano right now. And I was like, oh gosh, this is just delightful. Um, <laughs> they also fell asleep at one point and were snoring very loudly and you could hear them from like seven rows away. I'm glad I um, was so not in the theater with these people. I feel like I would have been very yeah. annoyed by them. I would have been annoyed if it hadn't been so funny. Because it was just like... <laughs> It was just like, how do you not, I don't understand what's happening. Um, so there's not, but then the film itself, right? Um, Elizabeth Moss is a fantastic actress at whatever she's given. And it doesn't matter how limited the role is or how small it is. She makes it into a real person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that the, the way that they made the invisible man was lovely. Um, it was mm -hmm. nice to not have it be some like, and I drank a solution that had a little bit too much salt or, you know, like something like that. Yeah, it, it wasn't was, a it was potion. It, it was very, it wasn't a potion. It was very real. Exactly. World. Yes. Um, I thought there were some interesting, I don't know if homage is quite right. Cause I'm not sure. I haven't read anything that said that he was particularly giving attention to this, but the opening sequence in particular, when she's trying to escape really reminded me of um, the opening scene in the, I don't remember what year in the 90s it came out, but Sleeping with the Enemy with Julia Roberts. So the last thing that I really appreciate, again, from a long list of things, um, is the use of neutral space. Yeah. Uh, also, you can also refer to it as blank space, which uh, <laughs> that makes me think of a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> the Taylor Swift really? song. Well, yeah, it's called Blank Space. Um, oh, okay. But that's not what I'm talking about in this case. In this case, it's like just when you see when the camera is lingering on seemingly nothing, like just there's a chair or something there, but, and there is no obvious movement, but just the fact that something could be occupying 
that negative or blank space is so deeply unsettling. And the fact that it doesn't have to do anything to like make you think that it's just like the film has trained you thus far to be afraid of negative or blank space because anything could be occupying that. It's just, it, it's so well done. And I really appreciate the fact that the film uses that consistently throughout. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's because of that repeated exposure that it uses. Yes. It like, it, it, it gaslight, no, it, it, it like, uh, it, it, it trains, it. Yeah, trains. Yeah, it trains you to be afraid of, of what you can't see, just like uh, Cecilia is in the film. And that I think particularly of the scene where she's making eggs, right? Yes. Um, and then there's the the kitchen fire. And there's some couple things really interesting happening, right? We get to see that, you know, we have to keep in mind that in any given life, there's more for us to be afraid of than the thing that we are obsessed with or the thing that we are most paranoid about because a kitchen fire is no joke. But also we spend that entire scene waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it doesn't because... That's part of what this film does is it makes us so paranoid that we don't know if we should be worried about the the use of the neutral space. Um, and I think that's just, I don't know the last time I saw a movie that was so craftful about that particular. Yeah. I, I think A Quiet Place is similar. What Quiet Place did for speaking uh, and making you so afraid to speak while watching the film, I think uh, this film does for what you can't see, and it makes you really afraid of what you can't see. And I think it's really interesting that both of those films play on the senses yes. and what it does there, and just what happens when you can't trust your own senses. To go back to something that Halberstam said, um, where she talks about the fact that you know the, the woman listens, right? And that's how paranoia is cued. So much of a film is about us being given cues, right? Like, be prepared. There's going to be something spooky that emerges because the score is telling you this. Yeah. Um, or be prepared for this knife to be really important because we're going to have an extreme close-up of it. Mm -hmm. And I think films like Quiet Place and The Invisible Man show us that, you know, a really powerful move can be... Um, eliminating that really obvious uh, connection and, and forcing us as the audience, just as we would in the real world, to be suspicious of everything because we we haven't, there is no opportunity in real life for us to be like, ah, close up of this mic, right? Like that, that's just not how we view yeah, the real world. that's just not how it works. And no, so it doesn't do it in the story world. Exactly. Um, so I know that the things I mentioned are also things that you liked because you and I talked about it. Mm -hmm. um, what else I, did you really I also enjoy really liked Wynell's writing. I think that he is he's taken a, a it's really interesting a character he which he said he didn't care about or like this like, this whole monster thing he didn't really care about and was really able to tell a very interesting thoughtful and timely story. It's very clearly um, been an effort of love on his part I, and I think he gets he's able what he's able to do within the typical genre fair is offer enough twists on what is what the conventional story would be to ki still keep you surprised i think particularly like scenes in the restaurant where oh she's there with her sister and it's so simple because of course you would you could you would just 
ki- the Invisible Man would kill the sister and put the knife in her hand. I, I, like after the fact, it makes so much sense. I'm like, yes, uh, of course, duh. But I didn't see it coming, and it just blindsided me. And I was—it was a fantastic moment. I, I the theater I was in just erupted. They couldn't. They lost their shit. Could not. Yes. Could not contain it. Neither could I. I was like, it's just moments like that that I was really taken by and I thought that's someone who knows enough about the genre as he clearly does he's worked in this genre for many years to know it know what our expectations are for this scene and then kind of just subtly subvert them yes and and I think it takes a really deft hand to do that because this is a film where in retrospect nothing that happens feels unexpected no. um none, nothing it's not like walking out of get out where you were like well i didn't see that one coming yeah, right like, <laughs> um it's you you leave and even though there were these moments where you were like holy cow that was not what i thought was going to happen in retrospect it all makes perfect sense and and what an incredible gift to be yeah. able to craft something like you said that feels so right but that didn't feel incredibly formulaic at the time what i love so much about invisible man's story structure is it has such strong verisimilitude, which is kind of just a fancy word that means the appearance of being true or real. And in story structures, it just essentially means that everything that came before it, before like these twists is like just, it builds on it just enough that you don't expect it to be coming. But when you think back about the rest of the story, it all makes perfect sense. And it had to happen that way. It's the only thing that makes sense. And, you know, I think another term that often gets used, although it doesn't feel like it makes sense when you have a fictional piece, but it's it's authenticity. Right? Yeah. That, that it feels like an authentic. And that's what verisimilitude really is referring to, right? Like, is it's the realness, the, the authenticity of this is the only way things could go. And we've had problems with this before in some of our horror texts. The, there was a lack of, uh, that at some point it felt like a person, the writers, intruded into the story to make it fit what they felt it needed to do or what they felt like they'd been told it needed to do. Um, and I think that in Invisible Man, we don't have that because the the film is doing, the story is telling what, what has to be told. Yeah. I've said this before and I always like every time I say this, I'm always paranoid huh, uh, myself that like I'm somehow going to create somebody who's going to make me be my own version of um, hell. But this is also just one of the things that I find personally very terrifying. This idea that um, no one will believe me and that, um, you know, I will be the sort of Cassandra figure, which, again, is a sort of repeating component of, of the COVID-19 um situation but that i will be aware of something and no one else is listening to me and if i were to have any real complaints with the film it actually does sort of connect with the like i understand super duper that anthony if you were like hey someone's in my house and i can't see them um and i'm pretty sure that it's you know my ex and this is like the first time that i'm hearing about your ex being super abusive right like I'm going to be like, that's nice, Anthony. I think you're just making stuff up. Like, I know that's my response, yeah. right? Because that's, that's what you would respond with. However, you did make a good case. Originally, I had a, more of a problem with James' sort of response um, to Cecilia supposedly hitting his daughter. Like, I understand that, you know, like, the Papa Bear instincts were emerging. Um, so maybe that is how someone would react. I, I, I feel like because you're ha- you would have to make a jump in faith, you'd have to not only believe that you didn't 
hit the daughter. But in order to believe that, you must also with wholeheartedly believe that there is someone else who you cannot see in this room. So it's, it's belief of two things, two separate things, and both are required in order to have her be off the hook. So I think you've convinced me, right? That, I mean, that makes His sense. reaction, That's... I think, in the story world yes. makes perfect sense. Yes. Even though as a viewer, knowing that she's right and knowing that this is my own personal fear, yeah. I, I'm a little judgy. Well, right? That's like, just dramatic irony. Right. But I do have much more of a problem with, I think, the sister's reaction um, in two parts for two reasons. One, I realized that they were estranged, but also, uh, you know, this is her sister. That should count for something. But but like it's an email. Emails can be sent by anyone. Um, and even if nobody but Cecilia sent that email, um, if if somebody came to me and said, I didn't send it, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. I just, in that moment, in that performance that, that Moss gave, I just feel like the sister should have been a little bit more, okay, well, clearly this is a mental illness then, right? Like, I just felt like the there needed to be more fractures um, to get us between the, um, you're saying crazy things and I'm going to cut you out of my life. Yeah, and I can see that one. I see that one way more than I see, like, having problems with James's response to her. I think her, the sister's response doesn't make a ton of sense. I think you have to believe wholeheartedly that they've had these problems before and she was just done with it. Yeah. But that's not really, that's me making up that defense for the film. That's right. not what the film actually presents. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, we're talking little tiny things. Um, I things. don't think that there's anything, you know, one of your and my biggest sort of like things that we hark back on is a source of horror. And I think this film has a very consistent it's so clear. message. It's so, it so clear. very clear, but we've talked about this before. Um, sometimes I think in the films where it's not clear, it's because they worried that, that it wouldn't be nuanced enough of a film or it wouldn't be sort of like rich enough of a narrative. But this is a good example of like, you can take a source of horror paranoia and uh, you know, domestic abuse and, it's complicated. It's multi-layered, um, but it's still always going back to that same sort of level of, of what makes this film really terrifying. Yeah. And I think this film in viewing it in now is also particularly terrifying, horrifying, if you will, such a nightmare, if you will, <laughs> um, because we're seeing rises in domestic abuse and these isolation times which was essentially what happened to cecilia she was mm -hmm. isolated in that house with her abuser adrian for so long and she wasn't able to get out and then when she got out she still wasn't safe which is kind of what is happening right now with covid19 because if you get out of your house where your abuser is you go out into the world where there's this pandemic going on and this infectious disease that could still kill you at any moment. So there's that paranoia that's built in. So I think that this film, despite, despite being released and made well before COVID-19 was had infected everyone's mind and was ev everywhere on the earth, it, it, it works really well in a reading in a post COVID-19 world. Yes. And I think that the fact that, you know, at the end of the day that she's justified in her actions 
Um, I think the fact that one of the things that's very disturbing about this film is the realization that the systems we have in place are not built to handle this paranoia being actual, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that Halberstam talks about is she says, paranoia furthermore has the peculiar property of tending to produce the reality it fears. And we see in, in Invisible Man that, you know, this is that her paranoia of like, I think I'm being watched. I think I'm being, you know, it becomes the reality. She is being hunted, but it's not a reality that the system, the police, the medical um, people are prepared to, to handle. And again, that's very real to our current situation. Frighteningly real. Yes. So, we're going to kind of keep strong with our um, investigations of how the horror genre has given us metaphors and lenses by which to view our current life. And so up next is... 2006 Bug. So we hope that between now and then you will watch that film and join us for our discussion of Bug. In the meantime... Yeah, be sure to share our podcast with your friends like uh, like this this thing that we do uh, on the digital platforms. Also follow us on our social media pages. And feel free to tell us um, about films that you would like us to investigate. We already have had requests and we are building them into our schedule. Yeah. So we would love to hear not just what you'd like to hear from us, but what are your thoughts about the the films that we're talking about? Yeah, and we'll try to respond to you and get back to you. Uh, Thank you so much for listening as always, and we'll see you here next time for our discussion of Bug. Bug.